one of the things I always say to students, comedy is a conversation, not a presentation. Now, presentation is something you do at work. We go, and these are the figures, and if you watch this bar chart up here, we're going to get these big numbers, you know, where comedy is you're talking to the people and not at them. It's an right? ebb and flow. And then you're responding to their laughter. Because yes. as a comedian, you, get to, you do this after a while. From their laughter, you're going, oh, they're really getting it. Oh, you, you agree with me, don't you? And they're going, yeah, we do. And then, or you're going, you have no idea what I just said, did you? And they go, no, we don't. Because you can read it. Oh, hot breath of verse. We are back. Hot breath episode 132 is now ready for you. I am your favorite host, comedian Joel Byers, and you know what time it is. Hot breath. <sighs> That's righty do, hot brethren and sistren. Welcome back aboard. This episode today is extremely exciting for all my comedy nerds specifically. This dude I interviewed today is a big behind-the-scenes mover and shaker. You know, in comedy, the show is one job. The business is another job. This gentleman today has made a very, very, very successful career out of making the business the priority and really driving that home and creating his own lane and really blazing a trail for many others to follow. So I hope this one inspires you, whether you're just a comedy fan, and I don't mean just, I mean I love you and we need you in this comedy world. And I appreciate you being a comedy purist and listening to Hot Breath. But this one will certainly up your professionalism if you are a comedian, or it will up your awareness of just how many different dimensions there are to stand-up comedy. All most people see is the stand-up specials on Netflix or the headlinings at the clubs, but there is an entire other universe beyond those two outlets that you can really carve yourself out an extremely successful career. And my guest today is one of those gentlemen so let's dive into it head first. I don't want to discount his comedy. He started way back in the 80s. He had great stories of doing comedy up in New York with people like Seinfeld. But at the end of the day, he has really made his own path beyond the comedy club. And I hope this either inspires you or enlightens you into another facet of comedy, as that is my goal here on Hot Breath. So I think I've teased it enough. I had one big regret in this interview. I'll wait until the outro. I don't want to take up any more of your valuable time. So again, I appreciate you, Hot breath Averse, for taking time to hang out with me today on Hot Breath Episode 132. And now there is only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath. <sighs> With Jeff, mics are live. You're now Justice. Justice. So you know, like on YouTube, they've got a thing where you can change, so you can put an unlimited size file on it. Um. Or is it just that it won't process 4K? Yeah, like I, I will upload a 4K video, mm -hmm. and then it only will process up to 1080. It's like something I've like researched and like spent a long time googling. Mm -hmm. thinking about trying to figure it out because I feel like any advantage you can get, I'm big on quality. So if 
I may not be as well known, but if I'm posting a video, somebody may notice, oh, he's shooting in like 4K. He's like paying attention to details and just, okay. yeah, but at the end of the day, if the content's quality. Well, you know, they're also watching it probably just on a regular, you know, 1080 <laughs> screen. So. Right, right, right. So it, it's kind of a mute point at this point. Yeah. Yeah. This is actually better than what I'm seeing. That's how good Joe is. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't oh, even need to do this. He just did it anyway. Yeah. My name is Joel, by the way. Joel. Nice to meet you, Jeff. Okay. Jeff Justice will officially it's, kick uh, off. It's Jeff Justice, by the way. Jeff Justice. Nice to nice to meet you, sir. It's so cool. Where's Rocky? Is your raccoon here? He's upstairs. He got he got retired many years ago when I started doing corporate jobs, and I realized oh, no. that uh, executives didn't like furry animals to urinate on them. So. Oh, okay. He got retired, and I still brought him out for like my kids, you know, birthday parties at school and stuff like that uh -huh. for years. But he had a nice long life. You can still find him on the internet, though. I, I found him. Okay. I was like, what? A, what a crazy like character. That That's was, a funny bit, isn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. funny because you I, started out as a magician, right? I did as uh -huh. a close-up magician, you know, doing sleight of hand, and then oh, okay. I. Uh, moved to, I guess, what we call platform magician, standing up, doing things, and then uh, comedy magic. Oh. And eventually, hopefully, 80% magic, 90% magic. And then just you would sprinkle in jokes along the way? Well, I, I used magic as a vehicle to do comedy through. Okay. So I always did tricks that worked and were amazing tricks, but I used comedy uh, with it, you know, I had funny lines with it, stuff like that. Funny mm -hmm. things will happen. That's why I was trying to explain to my recent comedy class uh, group there. Uh, one of their assignments was to watch the Rocky Raccoon bit on YouTube. And I said, <laughs> the thing I love about the bit that there's not one single joke in the whole thing. It's all physical. Yeah, it's all physical. Mm -hmm. It's all timing. It's all looks. And uh, situational type comedy, even slapstick to a point. How long did it take you to develop that? Well, you're probably not old enough to remember, but back at the Omni, there used to be an ice skating rink. The down Omni. There. You threw the it all Omni. the way back there. The Omni. All the way back, there was an ice skating rink, and next to the ice skating rink, there was a, a little magic shop. And I mean, I could literally take both hands and touch the two sides of the shop. <laughs> and I started working there, and <clears throat> basically, we used the raccoon puppet to get people's attention and get them to stop. And we started selling them there. And I, man, we sold thousands of them there. Hmm. But I would do it six, seven, eight hours a day, kind of like the oh. Beatles in Germany doing music eight hours a yeah, day. Yeah, and so, like strip clubs and everything, right? Yeah, so yeah. I, I wouldn't work in strip clubs, but uh, <laughs> damn. <yeah. laughs> but, uh, you know, you get better. You're doing mm -hmm. it all the time. You get bored with what you're doing, so you try out new things and new bits with it. So by the time... I went to audition at a, a comedy club up in New York. I had a 20-minute act that worked from all the stuff I'd been doing in the magic shop plus some stuff I wrote outside it. Yeah, because you won a contest here, right, for like 20 bucks that then made you want to move to New York? Well, I actually, yeah, I, that was years later I won that. Okay. But basically, I went to the Excelsior Mill where the old Sears building is where What's the name of that mall that's Pond there? City Market? Yeah, right. Yeah. So across the street from that, and it might still be a club there, Masquerade, I think. Masquerade is still there, yeah. So when it was Excelsior Mill, they had comedy on Sunday nights. And you got like uh, $10 and a slice of pizza and a beer, which is pretty much it. And I went to see a show there one night, and there's a guy up there doing comedy magic. 
and I'm watching him, you know, after a couple of beers, I'm thinking, man, I'm funnier than this guy, <laughs> yeah. right? So after a couple more beers, I got a, the nerve to go up and talk to the uh, guy who seemed to be running the show. And I'm like, hey, you know, I do some comedy magic and stuff. Like that. And the guy's like, well, okay, you know, you can be on the show next week. I'm like, great. What do you want me to do? Like five minutes? He goes, no, you can do 20. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, of I course, right? I had no act. <laughs> right, right, right. So I went home and wrote a 20-minute act, including the stuff I did at the magic shop. And, I mean, I, I duct taped my tape recorder to the top of a broom handle so I could get used to speaking into a, a microphone. Mm. And I just practiced my butt off there and at the magic shop night and day for a week, went up there that sunny night and just killed. Nobody else got laughs. And I was like James Gregory and all those guys. Whoa. They all, nothing. And I, I got laughs. I'm going, that's it. I knew it. I'm funny. I'm, I, I killed, man. <laughs> so I went up to the manager. You want me to come back next week? He goes, no, nah, give it a couple of weeks and come on back. I'm like, sure, no problem. So I get my girlfriend to come back with me the next time. And I put my recorder on the table so I can record all the, the laughter. And I just tanked. <laughs> yes. I mean, like nothing. <laughs> And, I, and afterwards, I'm talking to my girlfriend. I said, I can't believe you didn't even laugh. She goes, oh, I laughed. And I'm, I'm playing the recorder later on. And every once in a while, you hear her go, huh. <laughs> <laughs> and what I found out was, and, and this doesn't happen in any of the comedy clubs, I guess because it was like a unique neighborhood over there. It was the same 30 or 35 people that came every Sunday night. Ah. So the reason why everybody else bombed is because they had heard all their jokes three or four times. And... I was the new guy, so I killed. It was all fresh humor. And unlike music, you know, jokes aren't se funny the second time you hear them. Yeah. It's you know, just like it's, magic. Yeah, it's, it's like, like, you know, music's like, oh, here comes my favorite song, or here's my favorite part. Wow, that's great. Oh, look, they're having it again. And then, you know, comedy is like, well, that's what's on his DVD. Yeah, they're like, yeah. oh, I heard, I saw the trick. I saw yeah. how the trick's done. Exactly. And was this the early 80s? This was actually probably 79. Whoa. 79. Then 80 or 81, I moved up to New York. I guess 80, I moved up to New York. And then Ron Denunzo from The Punchline uh, came to New York looking for comedians. And I had just been in Atlanta and auditioned for him and passed the audition. So I was up there with all the other guys and the agents were there and everything. And I walked up and said, hey, Ron, how's it going? And he looked at the other agent and said, oh, well, I don't need to see him. He's, he's good. I'm already using him. And all the other guys turned around. And they all started booking me. Wow. So This was back when there was probably like 20 comics, though, right? Like, oh, this, it was the comic strip in New York. But was this, was this before the, the first boom and yeah, all this that? Was. This was. This was the first boom after Lenny Bruce and all those guys okay. kind of faded away and George Carlin and those guys. Um, and this was the resurgence of it. And I just lucked out because I had 20 minutes and a car. Mm. And they always needed somebody to drive the other two comedians to the one-nighters in New Jersey and Connecticut and stuff. So whenever I was available, I got booked. So I always got to do, and eventually, of course, I worked up to 30 minutes, but I got to work on my, my act six, seven nights a week in front of a real comedy Mm -hmm. uh, group and instead of getting seven dollars in New York, I was getting fifty and seventy-five dollars doing the one-nighters. So I was actually making a living uh, as a comedian in New York. So you didn't have a day job at that point? No, I never. Once I moved to New York to do comedy, I didn't do anything besides comedy. 
That's impressive. It was. Well, I lived in my parents' house for the first six months. But <laughs> oh, yeah, in Yonkers? Yeah, that was good. 30 years old, 31, moving back in mom and dad's house. Hi, I'm home. I'm going to do comedy. Hi. I've been doing magic. Now I'm going to yeah. do comedy and yeah. magic. Go out on a date. We come back to my house. Shh. What did, what did they do for a living? My parents? Yeah. My dad was in public relations. And my mom uh, had, well, she was a full-time mom, five kids. Mm. And as soon as the youngest one of us got old enough to go to school, she opened up a nursery school. Oh, okay. And it was great because you talk about nursery schools nowadays, you know, how PC and everything is. My mom would sit there with her girlfriend who ran to school with her smoking cigarettes in the same room <laughs> with all the kids. <laughs> You'd have a cigarette break, you know. Well, you don't want to go outside if the kid's alone. Of so, course. You know, well, on the other side of the room from them. You just make them tough. <laughs> tough enough, yeah. kid, man. It's a tough life out there. Were you the youngest? I was the middle kid. Can't you tell how oh. well-adjusted I am? Oh, okay. I didn't Come on. know. I, yeah. I didn't know if you were the... I'm the youngest, and I'm a, I'm a comedian, too, so I didn't know if there was a trait there. But I had two older brothers and two younger sisters. Whoa, so okay. Two older brothers who were both boxers, one Golden Gloves, one Park Hill, who I, I was their punching dummy. And then two younger <laughs> sisters, if I looked at them cross-eyed, they'd go crying to my dad. And then he hit me, who was also a boxer oh. uh, in his younger days. And you were a magician. So love it. <laughs> Love a man. Don't uh, want to mess up the face. That's probably how you first started using humor, I guess, to try to take away from them attacking you. Well, not so much with them, but um, you're a tall guy, mm-hmm. right? So when did you get your height? What? How old were you? Uh, this was probably ninth grade. Yeah. So I was before you. I, I walked in. I remember I walked into seventh grade at like five, five one and a quarter, and then walked into eighth grade at six three. Oh, so yeah. So I grew like, it was like the anorexic Hulk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like in one year. And, uh, and the problem was, as you probably found out, shorter guys love to beat up bigger guys. Uh-huh. So I had to use my sense of humor in order to diffuse those situations. Yeah. Because guys thought I was like 16 or 17. I'm like, I'm 13, man. Don't beat me up. <laughs> I'm a magician. I don't know why I keep leaning into the magician thing. It's just an interesting, interesting way to start. But like, how old were you when you started doing Ma- the magic? College. It was college. I, oh, okay. I was in a fraternity was a in college thing. and we were playing poker one night and this one pledge george uh from george peregrine from connecticut is this at fsu this is at miami date okay this was my gateway to fsu okay so george had you know everybody did card tricks and george had the first sleight of hand card trick i ever saw and it was just killer i mean i won't explain to you but he taught me how to do it and it was one of those tricks, like you would wait to, everybody else did their card tricks at a party and go, well, let me see if I got one, you do that. And it would like blow people away. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when I went to FSU, I got an apartment downstairs in the basement in the room they called the swamp. When I'm going, hey, how cool. And it's got a name. Well, I figured out why they called it the swamp when it rained. You know, mm. <laughs> it became the swamp. But I moved a chest of drawers there and behind it was a book that said, your hobby magic. And I started doing a few tricks out of that. And I started you know, buying some card uh, trick books, had a few other friends show me card tricks. And then when I moved to Atlanta, uh, there was a guy, Dan Garrett, who is one of the top close-up magicians in the country. I didn't realize it. And I was taking lessons from him down in Forest Park at M&M Magic for like $10 a lesson. And the way it would work is he'd go, what do you want to learn? I go, I don't know anything about magic. I said, why don't you just do some tricks? And if I like them, 
teach me those. And he was teaching me like these amazing sleight of hand tricks. So that was my introduction to it. So doing that got me a job at the magic shop. And then doing the magic shop got me over my fear of speaking in front of people and standing in front of people so that I could audition at Excelsior Mill. What was it like doing comedy in like the 80s? It's almost there's there's just mysticism behind that era. What was what was that experience it was so like? so cool. Yeah. Because all over the country, there were clubs opening up. I mean, the punchline was just starting. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of clubs. I got to be the one of the first acts ever on stage, like in Columbia, South Carolina, in Mobile, in Montgomery. And uh, it was great. So you had the funny bone circuit. You had the punchline circuit. You had two or three other ones. So somebody like me who was just learning his craft, I could work 50 weeks a year if I wanted to. And I was single. So... <sighs> And, you know, as a traveling comedian, forget having a relationship, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the first week, it's like, oh, wow, you're a comedian. You're going, going on the road? Yeah. And then, like, the second time, oh, you, you're going again, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what I do. And, like, the third time, it's like, uh, hello? Hello? Are yeah. you ghosting me? She's the mistress, comedy. That's it. She always takes you away. And you love her, too, oh, you know. She's There's brutal, nothing, though. You know, for those of, the, of them that have never done comedy before, there's nothing like it, is it? No, you know, that, it's that, like heroin. You got I've never that done heroin, house? but but from what we hear, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now my uh, comedy workshop class, I always tell them I'm so jealous of them because they get to go on stage at the Punchline, which is one of the top clubs in the country, in front of a packed house like 200 people, and and it's a juiced audience. It's all their friends and family. Right. I said. Nobody ever gets laughs and applause like that. I mean, your first time on stage, that's what you're getting. And uh, it's just, like I say, they keep going, well, can I have a drink before I go on stage? I said, you can have one afterwards. I said, but I don't think you're going to want to ruin the hide because you're going to come off stage and every cell in your body is going to be alive. Every nerve and synapse is going to be firing. (laughs) You're like glowing. You're like Superman. I'm jealous of them. I go, I can never experience that again. You get to experience that once, that first time on stage. Right. And then it's good from then on, you know. And But it's like, you know, up and down, as you know, you have those Ooh. nights where you're going, I'm walking on water. And next next night is, I'm drowning. Yeah. What, have you ever been booed on stage before? No. I'm not Shep. <laughs> <laughs> hey, people get booed. What is, what is yeah. maybe your worst, your worst memory, like the worst gig you can think of? Oh, wait, you know what? Now that I think of it, booed. Yeah, colleges. Oh. My, I had a week, and I don't know if this interview is long enough to explain it, <laughs> but you know how uh, they always say, be careful what you wish for, you might just get it? So when I was first in New York doing comedy, I had an agent pick me up, and I started doing college gigs. And I said, man, I want to be a college comedian. And I got booked up in New England, during uh, the last week of school. And it's also the last week that the bars were gonna be open because they were raising the drinking age the next semester to 21. So they wouldn't be able to drink on campus anymore. And plus it was finals week, so everybody is getting wasted. They're drinking as much as they possibly can. And just just to give you a few examples of that week, um, (laughs) one guy mooned me (laughs) and on his ass and lipstick was written, you suck. <laughs> um, I had to stay in the, the dorm 
which was always a bad sign that they couldn't afford a hotel room. They said, bring sheets. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's not a good gig. And I got up and, and all night long, they'd run up and down the hallway banging on my door. And I got up in the morning, they'd spit all over the doorknob and hung my picture in effigy in the bathroom. What? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, were you doing like a residency at this college? No, it was just a horrible night because I'm the one that they're blaming for oh. them closing the stuff. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, so... Are you doing the magic stuff? I'm doing the magic the comedy stuff. The stuff I do that always just kills. And it was just a nightmare. And I mean, it was night after night like that. It was like three, four nights in a row. Oh. And again, I can't go into it. One time I grabbed some kid and took two hands full of cakes and smashed them in his ear and in his face and threw them on the floor. So I won't tell you what went on before that. But that was, I mean, I'm doing this to like some poor 17-year-old kid, and I'm like almost 30 at the time. You did well, this to 30. one of the kids? Huh? You smashed him in the face oh, with yeah. cake? Well, <laughs> you say it like that happens every week. Yeah, oh, yeah you kidding me? Got, took him out, man. It's week two of my class, you know. <laughs> week two, cake, cake smashing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because you had the boxer Matter of fact, family, I have a little so box you... I can buy Jeff Justice cake, so, you know, it's like, you know, oh, yeah, professional yeah. cake smashing. Or you should get your wife to make them with her grits. Maybe you That's can do a... Uh... My wife and her grits, but hey, this is about me, not about her. She gets plenty of interviews. <laughs> Are these, is this her decor? Or is this your decor? I built that where I put it together. Isn't oh, that amazing? You built it from IKEA. Is that? Yeah. Well, you can see all the little things sticking up on it now that they're, they're like peeling up in the heat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I put that together in the evening. I was quite proud of myself. I didn't have to redo it, but she's responsible for how everything for looks the out. colors recently. and all that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I don't know. Yeah. She's got taste. Yeah. You no know, things like that. That's why. That's why I got married. I was like, yeah. I don't have taste or guy. I need both. We'd just be living on a hole, wouldn't we? You know, we're I just would, guys. Uh, we're just... I'd just be living in the back of some open mic. Yeah, that's it. And <laughs> I'm on. Am I on yet? <laughs> Do you ever miss it? Because you haven't done comedy since like 94, I think is what I read. Well, yes and no. Um, yeah, that. it was great when I did it and when I was single. You know, uh-huh. when you're single and you're traveling around the country, I mean, it's just great. But being married, I don't want to fool around, on, you know. On my wife, so when you you get on the road, there's nothing to do. You go back to the (laughs) condo and you're hanging out there watching TV and, you know, with two comedians that are bitter because they're not on Carson or Letterman at the time. And, uh, you know, that was it. You hit the malls during the day, a movie. And I still did it for a while, but by 90, yeah, 94, my youngest daughter was uh, four or five years old and we couldn't sneak her on Delta anymore and get her to some place for free. And I started doing corporate. And I realized real soon that because I was clean, I could do a corporate gig and make more for 45 minutes at a corporate gig in a nice place, in a nice hotel, nice restaurant, than I could for a week on the road, sometimes two weeks on the road as a comedian. Yeah, I'm telling you what, Jeff, I have gotten the taste of the corporate life a little bit very recently. Yeah. And I am hooked on getting into that world because it is like, oh, I just worked for 30 minutes and made double what I would have made an entire weekend sitting at a comedy club for like six hours a day. Exactly. It's like it was almost like revealed an entire new dimension to stand up. But I don't think I could ever just stop stand up as well. It's just like you said, like it's, it's just kind of like a drug. You so know? how old are you? 30. See, that's why you can't think you could stop stand-up. <laughs> you got to figure at 31, I was just starting stand-up. Right. So f- most people are over the hill by that point. You know, these guys started at like 19, 20 years old. Uh-huh. And they're complaining that they don't have their own sitcom by the time they're 25. 
I remember one time, because I'm one of those people I'm always happy, you know, and I was so thankful that I got to do stand, stand up. And I was, I remember one time I'm sitting at the, uh, the bar at the uh, comic strip up in New York. And I'm just sitting there, you know, enjoying life. And young comedians look at me and go, hey, Justice, how come you're always smiling? I said, because I get to do this for a living, you idiot. <laughs> right. you know, this is a great job. I said, I've had some really bad jobs. I've had jobs where people hit golf balls at me while I was trying to pick them up off the, off the driving range. I mean, you're like, what, 19, 20 years old? You've never had a bad job. And he was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll be happy when I'm like on Carson. And I'd say to him, man, if you're not happy with who you are, where you are right now, you're never going to be happy when you get to where it is that you think you're going because you're going to be stuck with the same person. And they just look at me and go, <laughs> and they're not. They, you know, they, so many of my friends got, got Carson and nothing big happened. It wasn't like the, mm-hmm. you know, the trumpets blaring and everything. Is that a good trumpet? It sounded pretty bad. It was bad. great. Okay. It was a great Thank act you. out. That's Thank week you. three the of the Jeff out. Justice class. <laughs> and, uh, and they was, weren't happy. It's just, it was like people that have... Um, Plastic surgery, and they're still the same depressed person. Mm-hmm. You know, even though now they look so much better, this like so you got to you know you got to be happy inside, no matter what you're doing in life. And and that's one of the things I always was. I was always happy wherever I was. I'm like I'm going. I'm in the right place. Where did you gain that perspective? Where did you learn it? I'm just a cool guy. Just cool breeze. <laughs> no, I'm a very spiritual person too. And uh, and my wife, her favorite saying for our kids was, you're in the perfect place at the perfect time. You know, mm. people say, would you change anything about your, your past life? I go, no, because it might have affected where I am now. I mean, it's like this, this is what I was supposed to do. And, you know, bad stuff happens, things like that. But, you know, it's, it all just makes you who you are. You know, you just don't buy into it. It's like, okay. And how many times you had something happen that you thought was really bad, and then six months later you're going, oh, my God, thank God that happened. Totally. Right? And yeah. same, the other thing. Oh, man, I got this gig. This is going to be great. And you get in a car accident on the way there, or you get food poisoning, or it turns out the gig was just horrible, or, you know, you just kind of got to find that balance in life. I always just say, well, we'll see. People go, oh, that's going to be a great gig. I go, we'll see. Yeah, and, sometimes and I get well, nervous with good because it seems like, Comedy will give you a really killer show, and then it's like, oh, there's a bomb coming around the corner. I'm so there scared. always is. Yeah, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I would say in my corporate shows, 98 percent of them go good to great, but there's that two percent, and you're doing the same program, the same way, and it's just not your night, and people just stare at you, you know, like, brother, you do this for a living, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, I just remember one, I flew out somewhere out west, and they decided to bring everybody in for a show Sunday night, which meant everybody lost their weekend at home. So they had to come in, and so to make up for it, they just gave them an open bar for two hours before oh, the show, my bottles of wine on all the table, and gave them steak and lobster. So they're just sitting there like, no <laughs> oxygen left in their body, to, <laughs> no blood left in their brain. And I mean, I'm doing everything, and they're just staring at me to the point where I had to do another program the next day that was more like a workshop, which isn't anywhere near as funny as the keynote is. And the comments that we got was, you know, really, this guy does this for a living? You know, this, mm-hmm. this was a waste of money. This was really bad. But then they all said, well, thank God he got better the next day. On the less funny one. <laughs> on the less funny stuff. Because, I mean, like I say, they were all in a bad mood because yeah. they had to be in there. They're, they're drunk. They're stuffed. 
and they just want to go to bed. Do you address <laughs> it or you just plow through? You know, it, it, it depends. Like, that's a, a great example. Yeah, a great question. Because there's two different schools of thought. He knows his stuff, man. He does. Is you can just plow through and just say, well, it wasn't my audience, which is about what I did that night. Mm -hmm. Now, I had the same type of thing where I was down at Callaway Gardens. I got hired by a construction company, and I get there. The entire audience is like construction foreman. I'm up on stage, and I've got on my three-piece suit, my my little tie, string tie, and I I mean, I look like like the pencil-neck geek from accounting there to ruin (laughs) their lives. And these guys are all, you know, in plaid shirts and jeans and muddy boots and sitting there with their arms crossed with like four arms to size them on my thighs, right? And I did the, so I took off the jacket, rolled up the sleeves, trying to look a little more casual, but I couldn't. <laughs> and I, and you know how as a comedian, you have like your, your tester jokes at the beginning of your act. Uh-huh. You know, if those jokes go well, it's going this way. Boy, they don't go well, man. You need to do something else. And I did about three or four of those, and I'm just getting nothing. And I'm, I'm looking over at the guy who booked me, and they'd never paid this. I mean, they'd paid thousands of dollars for me to come down. They'd never paid that much for a speaker. And he's like flop sweat coming down his brow. And right there, I did exactly what you're talking about. I said, well, I can either just plow through this and say it wasn't my day, or I can stop and I can go back to my comedy club roots and talk to the audience. So I just picked the biggest, meanest-looking guy in the whole place, and he's just sitting there like this. Right? I go, man, what's your, what's your name? He goes, Bill. I go, Bill, you look like you've been pissed off since birth. <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> I go, yeah, you're, making, you're sitting there in that great comedy pose. Make me laugh, jerk face. And he goes, <laughs> and a few other people start laughing around him. And then I'm giving him a hard time because he's got the same shirt as the guy next to him. And, you know, hey, Kmart have a sale? <laughs> and what happens, as you know, you go from somebody who can stand up in front of a group of people and say things that they memorized and wrote that are funny to somebody who can just talk to you and be funny. Like I made a comment to, to you when we were walking in the house here today about the Miami Zen, look, and you go, how many times you use that line, right? Right, right, right. right. So that's the great thing about ad-libbing, as uh, I guess I could give a plug, I have a CD called How to Ad-Lib Like a Professional or Just Look Like One, right? Ding! And when you ad-lib, it, the audience perceives that you are making it up right on the moment, but a, a, best, a great ad-lib is a well-prepared one. After you've been in comedy, you know the things that's going to happen during a show, right? Mm-hmm. You know, eventually the mic's going to die. Uh, you're going to get feedback. There's going to be a noise. Waitress is going to drop a tray of drinks. Uh, people are going to walk in late and stand right in front of you or right in the middle of your set. The guy right in front of you is going to get up and everybody's going to go, oh, I wonder where he's going. And like you've lost all their attention. So ad-libbing helps break that. Get a great laugh because it's unexpected. People think you're making it up. And then it gets everybody's attention back on you again. And I want to have having a great show with the guys from Callaway Garden because that's what I did. I just, I ad-libbed. And did, did you start to weave in the material again? Exactly. So kind of go back and forth? Yeah. Okay. And it works great. I had one company, lady beforehand comes up to me and says, see that guy in the front row over there? She goes, that's John Smoltz's dad. She goes, you want me to introduce you? I said, no. She goes, why not? I said, because I, I want to talk to him during the show, and I want it to be fresh, and I don't want him to feel comfortable talking with me. 
So I, 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 sometimes in my corporate shows, I'll, I'll talk to people in the audience, what do you do for a living? Where are you from? Hey, you got any hobbies? And, and make funny stuff up from that. So I waited, and you know, one guy said he, did, he played music and stuff. And, and I knew from talking to the lady that John Stead, who's a big guy, very mm-hmm. overweight, probably 65 years old, going bald and everything, just, but a real nice guy, real happy-go-lucky guy. And I know from, him, from her that he's got a great sense of humor, but he loves to play the hand accordion, the little annoying one, you know, you know the one that goes like that. Oh, yeah. And he brings it everywhere, and people are like, oh, my God, That's he's going to bring it out again. <laughs> so I know that. And I'm talking to him, I go, you know, you know, uh, you know hey, sir, what's your name? It was John. So I know I, I got to get the rest of it. I go, you know, John what? He goes, Smoltz? I said, you're John Smoltz? He goes, yep. I said, man, have you let yourself go? <laughs> I said, come on, spring training's coming, man. Drop the yoga. Eat a yogurt, drop the donuts. And he starts laughing at himself because I know he's got a great sense of humor. You know, what do you have any hobbies? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you play music? You know, what do you play? Accordion? Oh, one of those big things with all the buttons and everything. And he goes, no, no, one of the hand accordions. I'm like, Everybody's laughing again. I said, no, I'm kidding. That's a great instrument. I said, hey, uh, you think anybody ever comes up to your son and says, you're John Smoltz, the accordion player? (laughs) And of course, it just killed. Yeah. And the great thing was, I got two more jobs that gig from guys that were sponsors from other companies that were at that show that saw me do that and figured, oh my God, that guy's making that up right off the bat. But I thought, and once she told me that he played the hand accordion and stuff, I was ready for when I got up there. Is that how you found you've been able to generate momentum in the the corporate world is like, I've worked with one company twice and I've like hosted like group building events with them. Right. And it's, it's like a third party that companies will hire. Right. So is it, have you found to get, get known in that it's more of like, I did this show and then there just happened to be somebody else from another company that booked and it just kind of snowballs that way. So you're trying to figure out my secrets here, Joel? I mean, we're just talking yeah, business I'm here, I'm going to help you out, you know, young guy. You know, we got young generations. We got to... I'm helping you out, man. Passing it down, passing it forward. I, I, I appreciate it, man. So what you do is every time you finish a gig that people really like you, the person that books you, if they're one of the people in the audience, they come up and go, Joel, that was great, man. We just loved it. If you can get it on video right then, I, w- I would do that. Um, I would also copy that down later on, whatever the guy said to you. And so, like, let's say you hired me. And the show went great. And you come up, hey, Jeff, you know, great show. Hey, thanks, Joel. You know, wonderful audience you got here and stuff. I said, hey, let me ask you, you know, do you know uh, anybody else in the, in the company or maybe other companies that, you know, their group might also benefit from a program like this? And they'll either say yes, and then you ask for their names, or they'll say, no, not really. And if they say, no, not really, I said, yeah, I know it's kind of hard to think, but let me ask you, if you had to guess, who would you th- think it would be? Oh. Well, you know what? My brother-in-law works for, you know, IBM. You know, he, he's like a manager over there. So I get him, them to recommend me to at least three people. Usually three is about the most you can get. Mm-hmm. I'll have them write me a letter of recommendation. And if they, if I, and a lot of times they don't have time to do it, I write the letter of recommendation. I'll send it to you and go, hey, Joe, this is what I heard from you and the other people at the uh, seminar, you, you know, about my program. Um, feel free to change whatever you like, and would you print it out on your letterhead? <laughs> they copy, paste it, sign it, put it on the letterhead. You know, you've saved them so much time. And then when I ask them about the three recommendations, I say, would you do me a favor, and would you just call them 
and let them know I'm going to call them. So it's not a cold call for you when you call now. And, you know, when somebody calls you up and says, hey, we had this comedian, Jeff Justice, last week. He was great. If you've got a meeting coming up, you ought to use him. You're going to go, yes. I mean, recommendation is the highest thing you can get, right? Yeah. But most people won't do it. They feel awkward asking like that. Right. And, and the, the key is getting the person to call the person that the, they're referring you to and just say, you know, Joel's going to give you a call. Okay, and you call back and say, hey, I was talking to Jeff, and he said uh, for me to give you a call. He really liked the program and said you might have something coming up. And they're going to go, yes, we do, or no, not right now. Let me ask you, when's your next uh, big meeting come up? You might use a speaker, right? Well, that's going to be, you know, fall of 2019. Let me ask you, when do you make your decision on that? Well, usually around January. Would it be okay if I gave you a call back in December? Yeah, sure. And then you write it down, you call that guy back in December, and I'll send him a note or two between now and then. So it's, it's work after that. Right. Yeah. You almost have, it's almost like a script you have. Yeah. That's because I have, I know like sales jobs, there's like when you call someone, it's like, well, you want to, you do this. And if they say this, then you do this. And then, exactly. So you've almost broken it. You found a system. You can just kind of plug in. I didn't find the system. This is stuff from the best speakers in, in the country. I, I'm a member of the National Speakers Association, which okay. you should join if you want to be a speaker. There's uh-huh. a Georgia chapter here. And they meet like the second Saturday of every month. And it's great. We get the best speakers in the country coming to speak to us because we've got the best chapter. We've got up over 100 people in our chapter. And they tell you everything. Hey, this is what I do to market myself. This is what I do to create my materials. This is how I did my video. This, this is how I do PowerPoint, which I don't do. But I mean, the people that do this stuff, they're amazing. I mean, they're just like so much better than like the normal people that do stuff. Yeah. So... I always take notes during the whole thing, and I will try stuff. And if it works, it stays in. You know, my pitches and stuff, if it doesn't work for me, eh. So you don't use, you don't have any sort of visual aid? It's just... It's me up there. Oh, okay. I figured in the corporate, because you do, I know you do like keynotes, and you'll also train people on how to incorporate humor. Like you you really, as far as the business side, you have, you really have multiple streams. You're, like your yeah. branding is like more than just one identity you really right. offer a bunch of services like a one-stop shop almost i do and i also do continuing education which is a huge market so oh yeah for stenographers right yeah that, uh, don't call them stenographers oh, oh i'm so sorry i'm not court in. reporters court reporters but i've also been uh, helping mentor carlos rodriguez who is I, in yes. the dental industry mm-hmm. so he's a hygienist he's hysterically funny he's got a lot of bits about being a hygienist i'm going this is a natural for you to do humor and stress dealing, you know, with patients as a hygienist. And he's just been killing doing that. So I'm, yeah. I'm trying to get him into the groove of getting material together and videotaping it and eventually having an online presence doing it. How long are your presentations? Well, mine is usually anywhere from an hour and a half to four or five hours. But Whoa. Uh, we do a 10-hour seminar in one day. So I have three other women or two other women who are court reporters and are very funny, great storytellers, but very knowledgeable about what they do. And it's tough to find somebody like that as a court reporter because they're usually introverts. They don't mm-hmm. like, you know, that's why they have the machine there and they're, they're, they're doing their, um, they'd be upset if I say typing, they're recording uh, what everybody's saying with that. And they, they don't like to talk in front of groups. So to find two or three that love it, are good at it and are great at what they do has just been a gold mine for me over these years. How have you found 
the because it's interesting you're all the way in this corporate world and then you're still teaching this stand-up class i love that as well that's my favorite thing in the world is doing the stand-up or workshop i'm yeah, sorry t- you're teaching the comedy workshop yeah well the thing is i get to take people from the first day of class just having an idea you know maybe their friends have told them they were funny Maybe they're a business person and they want to get better at speaking. They know if they use humor in their presentations, people are going to pay attention to them. And maybe people that the idea of going on stage and speaking in front of a group of people scares the hell out of them. They want to get over that fear. I mean, I've I've had everything. And some people just go, hey, this sounds like another fun class, you know, bucket list type thing. Right, right. But to take them from that very first day, and I just tell them, if you listen to what I say, if you do what I ask you to do, which is basically writing the jokes, that there's no way I'm going to let them go on stage and not be funny. And I've had about 3,000 graduates. I've never let anybody down on that. And uh, just take them from that first day, and then six weeks later, they're on stage just killing it at the punchline. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it just, I love it. You know, it's just great, especially if, you know, when there's jokes that we've worked on in class, and they go up stage, on stage, they do it just like I said, and it just kills. You know, I'm just going, yeah. And then there's sometimes they go on stage and they go, I don't think that joke's going to work. And they go, but I really like it. I said, you know what? You're the one that's on stage, you know. I'm figuring, what if one, one joke bombs? What the heck? Right. And they go up, and that's like the funniest thing they do. Yeah. But then I like laugh more and I look up and go, okay, God, is this your sense of humor? You know? <laughs> so you never know. Yeah, sometimes it's the magic of the moment. It's a, and it's the connection to the audience. There's sometimes I've had people go up there that the audience just fell in love with that were just humorous. Not hysterically funny, humorous people, and the audience just laughed at every single thing they did. What I, is, go ahead, I didn't want to I said I off. had one woman doing a five-minute yeah. routine, and she was up there 21 minutes. They just laughed. I mean, like, if she went, yeah, they'd go, <laughs> she said, yeah. You, know, you can't explain it. At the grad show? Yeah. She did 21 minutes? But she only did her five-minute routine. The audience laughed that long. Whoa. Usually they laugh like anywhere from six to eight or nine minutes. Yeah. You know, so it stretches that four-minute routine out. But uh, this one is just unbelievable. And you started the class because you were watching comics when you were doing it, and you would be like, oh, they're making some mistakes here. I can give them a couple tips, and you saw it worked, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Exactly. When I first moved to Atlanta... I would go to Jerry Farber's for open mic night to work on new material, uh-huh. and exactly what you said. And I found out the ones that took my advice, they immediately got funny. It's like the next time they're on stage, you were funnier. And eight of them got together and said, would you just teach us what you know? And I'm like, sure. And I was going to teach the class with Jerry Farber. Then after the first class, he said, forget it. You know more than I do. You just teach the class. <laughs> Not thinking it would be anything. And, and I thought that's the only time I would teach it. I said, maybe, you know, one more time I would teach it. And, at the, and I, didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. I'd, I'd like Xerox four or five pages out of one of Judy Carter's comedy the, writing. Uh-huh, you know, the comedy Bible? Yeah, probably that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, I think it was stand-up comedy, the book. Oh, okay. was what it was. And, again, I was just giving them my advice. They did jokes. and they, I don't even think they even did jokes to the last class. And... You know, I, I kind of helped them brush them up and stuff. I said, you know what? Why don't we have a graduation? Let's, let's just invite your friends and Jerry's. I mean, it only holds 90 people. Maybe we'll get 30, 40 people in there. They packed the place. It was a fantastic show. The audience went crazy. And at the end of the show, 
their friends came up to me and said, you know, do you ever do this for normal people? You know, people that don't want to be comedians. I said, well, I never thought of it, but, and this was like before the internet. I said, you know, just give me your phone number. If I ever decide to do it again, I'll give you a call. And that was 3,000 people ago. It's, it's probably one of the longest running comedy classes. In the country. Maybe like, or it probably is the longest running actually. Started in like 1990. Like, 1990. Well, goodness. the thing too is, you know, I'm also a bit of a businessman. Uh, just so, a bit. I mean, I marketed it. You know, I'm pushing the people to sell out the, the seats. I'm on the internet. I mean, on Facebook, I'm taking pictures of my students and putting them up there and tagging them. And, and you know, I'm always working to fill the class. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, one of the things that I do for the students that nobody else does that I know of, and maybe maybe I'm wrong, is I already help them rewrite their jokes. Matter of fact, that's what I was doing this morning. And after you leave, I'll be doing it again. My students' uh, first rehearsal is next week. So they're all sending me their final routine. And I'm going through, through and cutting stuff and rewriting stuff and telling them, no, you need a, a funnier close than that. Work on it some more. So oh. I will work with them on every single joke. And then I'll work with them on delivery. And you know from comedy, 90, 95% of it's delivery. That confidence. It is. But you can have confidence in knowing that the material's funny. That can bring out the confidence that you need on stage. And also having it memorized, word for right. word. Right, yeah. That gives you confidence too, because uh-huh. if you have to uh, think of what's, oh, what's, is, that, is it a nun? No, it was a no, what and I don't let them do any like what, what I call joke jokes. So any any joke they've ever heard before, any joke that they've yes. seen on the internet. Because mm-hmm. as soon as you take a comedy class, your friends go, oh, you know what you should say? Don't say that. You know, so, <laughs> so they're writing original material about themselves and how they see the world. And with, over, with almost 3,000 students, what have you found to be the most common mistakes people make early on in comedy? I would say a group. I actually have a white paper that I have. If anybody wants it, um, they can write into you and I'll send them a copy mm-hmm. of it. It's the 20 mistakes that most people make using humor. Number one is they don't put the punch word at the end. Say so say the punch word, the thing that makes it funny, and they keep talking. Hmm. And if they keep talking, people can't laugh, right? They drop their voice on the punchline. So they drop their voice on the punchline. So every joke ends like this. And the whole routine is sounding like, and you're going, no, it's got to have a little energy to it. I mean, it's, it's the punchline, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's not the punchline. It's the punchline, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not like, it doesn't have to be like the cat's goes like, these are the jokes, folks. <laughs> but um, it needs some energy. They, they uh, go too fast. And one of the things I tell them is, when you write it out, anywhere that there's punctuation, whether it's a comma, question mark, exclamation point, shut up. Stop talking. Make it sound natural. And you make things sound conversational by pausing, right? I suppose that you make things sound conversational by pause, pausing, mm-hmm. right? And it's like trying to remember to breathe up there. It is. And, just, and you think you're going slow and you're going a mile a minute. So I tell them that if they think they're going too fast, they are. If they think they're going too slow, they're not. I might have had one student in all these years where I, I said, you need to pick it up a little bit. You know, you're just too slow. Mm-hmm. Right? And you need to have a little bit more energy with it. But most people are just boom, going right through it. Um, eye contact. They do their jokes. Every joke, they look down like this. 
and they go up to do the next joke, and then they look, look down, and not verbally f- to the audience, that's saying, oh, what's my next joke? Uh, oh, yeah, now I remember it, as opposed to having this conversation. It, one, of the, one of the things I always say to students, comedy is a conversation, not a presentation. Now, presentation is something you do at work. We go, and these are the figures, and if you watch this bar chart up here, we're going to get these big numbers, you know, where comedy is you're talking to the people and not at them. Right? Yeah, it's a conversation. Like, you, you, what you say to them and the laughter is their response. It's an right. ebb and flow. And then you're responding to their laughter. Yes. You, as a comedian, you, get to, you do this after a while. From their laughter, you're going, oh, they're really getting in. Oh, you, you agree with me, don't you? And they're going, yeah, we do. <laughs> and then, and then, and, oh, you're going, you have no idea what I just said, did you? And they go, no, we don't. Because you can read it. And yeah. you know, one of the problems most comedians have once they leave my class is being able to judge the laughter in a room because there's a big difference between 200 people that know you and love you laughing and eight people and 15 comedians yep. laughing in the open mic night. Right? Oh, yeah. So, you know, in a case like that, you might get three or four people laughing. You're going, that's a good laugh for that, for that group, right? Yeah. The people don't understand the grind. And, you know, I actually, I actually teach a stand-up class I've been doing for oh, who doesn't? almost two years. Yeah, <laughs> I have a podcast and a class. Wow, way okay. to break the mold, mold, Joel. Do you do it online? I don't do it online. Yeah, I'm still thinking of doing that. Yeah. I got enough interest one day I may. Yeah, I've, I've, I mean, it's something I intend to do, but it's like intention is not action. And it's just as my ex father in law used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> As a well, minister, I uh, would. It's just like even with, with like with the the corporate thing or whatever is just. It's just. It takes a lot of energy to actually get something going productively. Like if you were still doing stand up, you. I, I'm not saying you may have, but you may not have been able to build such a successful corporate career because the stand up would have been taking away some of your attention and energy. But since you had the, you put everything into the corporate, you've been able to build this. Pretty. I mean, you built this house—the house that comedy built. So, well, my wife built a house. This was a, she was a, a, a singer-songwriter. She was, oh, yeah, she should be a, a backup singer for Tammy Wynette. And, oh my good. Damn, well, we're talking about her again. <laughs> she's no, listening. And, but and yes. she had her own album. She had uh, uh, wrote two songs that were on um, Debbie Boone's "You Light Up My Life" album. Goodness so she had gracious. top 20 country hits with those. Okay. And that, that was the down payment for this baby. Then comedy and grits bits paid for the rest of it. I, I thought this was just corporate money because I know no, I can only imagine nice? the, the, the rate I got on an introductory side. I can't imagine being the dude what you get. That's, it's, it's def- I've been there. I, I, I think the, the most I've ever gotten for one job for one day was five figures. And I'm sitting there going, Really? you're going to give me that much money for like an hour program? I'm like, yes. <laughs> I mean, and, and you only, only one though. Like that's where the bar is now though. I, I, I've done one or two shows for that amount. Mostly. And I don't mind saying I mostly, I get between four and 6,000. Okay. For a 45 minute show. I mean, yeah. how can you not do that? And they cover the travel and room Have and board and all good that. Good travel, Food. a hotel nicer than I'd pay for myself, mm-hmm. a dinner that's better than I would buy myself anywhere. And when they're paying that kind of money, they really take care of you. I mean, when you get there, there's somebody picking you up at the airport. They got a car ready for you. Or they've got something arranged. And I mean, you're staying in a nice place. And there's a sound check. And you're going down. And the room's set up just like you asked them to set it up. As opposed to the times I 
somebody's going, we're really hurting for money. And, you know, could you do this for X number of dollars? And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll come in. And it's a crappy sound system or there is no sound system and nothing you asked for has been done. The tables are spread out all over the place instead of tight together. So, you know, when people pay the big bucks, you get you know, the they, they go all, all out. Yeah. It, but is that not in your contract? That of course it's in my contract. They still don't do it. sound will work. The tables will be a certain way. They you'll still, still do, do the it. gig anyway. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you wanted that? <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you've ever seen my act, my big closing is the, the microphone stand and the handkerchief with the chariots of fire and everything. Oh, I and I'm, seen Oh, that. it's a killer bit. It's, it's, it's like the... Um, well, it's the culmination of my act. I end it all the time. And I have somebody from their company come do it with me. So they're a hero for uh-huh. doing it. And you need a mic stand to do the thing. And I get up there and there's a podium with a mic stuck to it. <laughs> and Ooh. I've had people go home and, and get their kids' microphone stand and bring it back in. My kid's in a band. Go get the mic stand. You know? yeah. well, that's why I always get there the day before. I always check everything out. Because there's always problems. Mm-hmm. So what do you think in terms of, let's say, for instance, you know, I'm a, a newbie. I don't have any connections really into the corporate side of getting that kind of work. I feel like my unique angle, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is one that I am younger and that I may be coming from a different experience than most people most public speakers with like the comedy background and all that. I'm sure that's something you can leverage with yours is I did stand up for over a decade. I had these I've been doing it forever. I'm not like these young punks yeah. coming up here trying to be funny. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like, you yeah. know, I mean, I am funny, but it's in the trying to transition that and translate that into the corporate world. You know, I've been, I really built up my LinkedIn profile thinking that may be a good way to start connecting with people. Nah, I've nah. gotten one thing so far from LinkedIn. Wow. And I couldn't believe it. It was like, you know, somebody called me up and I'm like, where'd you find me? We're LinkedIn. I'm like, seriously? Wow. Like, really? Wow. You hired me from that? Yes. We really like your stuff then. I went to your website and your video is really funny. I'm like, and like my brain just going, really? Seriously? Really? And I mean, there's people that really work LinkedIn. Apparently, I'm not one of those people. I, I, my stuff is all on referrals. Yeah. I guess it would be referrals. Um, word of mouth right referrals Mm -hmm. and people finding my website just by accident looking for a funny speaker or a funny speaker in Georgia or stress management speaker and they go to my website and they like what they see okay that's it and you know it's there there was a time that I I worked a lot harder at marketing it it's funny I, I say to my wife sometimes I go you know, at one time, we were paying the mortgage on this house, which was a couple of thousand a month. Our oldest daughter was going to private school at Woodward. Um, we were taking these big vacations, said, what would we do? What were we doing for a living back then? So, we should go back and do that because you know, <laughs> that, that must have been pretty good money. And I was doing a lot of corporate events that, yeah. you know, 70 to 100 a year. And now I just do, you know. A dozen to two dozen a year at the most. Just whatever you feel like now. Well, I don't pursue it a lot, so it's whatever comes in. Gotcha. You know, I'm not turning it down. Somebody says they're going to give me $5,000. I go, you know, I really wanted that week off. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. So you got in before all the technology, I guess. But what are these... Yeah. And you've mentioned marketing a couple of times. So maybe what are some marketing tips you have, whether it's like me in the corporate world or just comedians in general? 
Well, I think you comedians nowadays, you young guys, you have it all over us. You got Facebook. Yeah. You got um, Instagram, Snapchat. I mean, you got all these things. Twitter. So you can build your tribe. So you get these people like Carlos. He's always posting, hey, here I am with this famous person. Oh, I had a great time working at the punchline with this. They're awesome. And, and every time it's going out there, he's linking himself to those people's names. So those, his, those people's followers are seeing Carlos's stuff now. And, uh, and you know, Angela Miller, mm-hmm. one of my past students, I just love the stuff she does. She's always got posters that she's put together, graphic things that... That wasn't an option for us coming up. What I did was, I mean, basically, I went around the country. I, I had a Mac Plus computer, which weighed about the size of a very fat child. <laughs> and I had a backpack, and I would carry it in my, in my back and put it on planes. And when I went to go work a club, I would put out these cards on the table for people to fill out if they'd like to be on my mailing list. And then next time I came to town, I would send him like a two-for-one ticket to come see me, and if, if that ticket came in, the club owner would give me so much money for each one of those tickets that came in, and plus I would sell my raccoons at the end of the show. So oh, I got to sell raccoons. Oh yeah, Whoa, oh yeah, man, twenty bucks guy. a pop. But Woo. it got to the point that I was making more than the headliners when I was working with when I was a feature act. So life was good. Now with corporate marketing. I do strange things. One of the most effective things I started doing was we go on a lot of nice vacations. You know, if you look around this house, I mean, you like the house, but do you see anything expensive? I don't know what yeah. is expensive. Yeah, I don't. I know that thing might be. My sister-in-law gave it to me, but I have no idea what it is. It's all that pretty. bucket ain't. You know, it, IKEA, 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 IKEA. You mm-hmm. know, uh, but we spend our money on vacations. So we've been. India, Asia, parts of Asia, Singapore, all through Europe, cruises and stuff. And when I go away, uh, I would take a list of my corporate contacts and I'll send them postcards. And I'll be huh. in Paris and I'll spend maybe an hour a day writing postcards to people. And it just blows them away that I would take time on my vacation with my family to send them a note uh, on a postcard. And, and I had many examples. Of my favorite one was uh, I was working with um, Singular at the time. And a guy hired me, and I asked him how he found out about me. He says, well, I was working, walking by Bob Johnson's desk one day. I said, uh, uh, we got a meeting come up. We need a speaker. And looks on the desk, picks up a postcard, and says, here, this guy's great, and hands him the postcard that I sent him from France. <laughs> right? It's incredible. It is. And you know, people say, I got your postcards up on... Uh, you know, my wall there. And I do stuff, we do, my wife and I do funny Christmas cards every year with the kids. So all my corporate clients get those. And I can't tell you how many people save them, Hmm. you know? And every year they're going, we're waiting to see what the kids look like this year. We're waiting to see what funny thing you're going to (laughs) do. And usually my wife comes up with a funny thing. She's great at puns and stuff. So Oh, that's a great team, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. Sounds well, my like kids my hate it. You know, they finally yeah. got to the age. I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> I've actually photoshopped them into pictures they refuse to be in. <laughs> so what in, in wrapping this up here, because I know you're a very busy man. you got to go work back on your class. I've got to go help people with their jokes. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I don't. I don't go that far in. We'll we'll brainstorm in class. Like they perform every week, 
And then we'll do like a, a writer's room where we bounce around ideas about how they could build up the set. And then we'll go into like the lesson for the day. But, well, but I tell you, if you, if you take it one step further and you listen to them do a joke and you go, oh, here's a topic they could do with that. Here's a, here, all right, so an example. And of course, it's horrible to say, here's an example. Because then people go, oh, this must really be yeah, funny, right? Right, 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 right. And I always bomb in front of my class because, you know, I'll go, well, here's a joke from my act. And they go, oh, this is going to be great. And they yeah. go, that's it? It's like, well, I haven't done comedy in We're over paying a him? decade now, guys. So. so one of my students is working on a joke. And he says, uh, I wonder, last Friday night, I went speed dating. And I don't know if you do this, but I teach my students to make everything immediate. It happened on the way here yeah. tonight, yesterday, a few days ago, right? Yeah. Because in the audience's mind is if it's just happened to you, you already came up with something that funny. That's great. But if you say, oh, this happened to me last year, and it's like you had a year to think of something, and that's, that's what you came up yeah, with. Yeah, the stakes are higher, too, exactly. when it's sooner. Exactly. So he's going, uh, last night I went, uh, speed, tried speed dating. And I noticed the first girl came up, uh, asked me to buy her a drink. Next girl came up and asked me to buy her a drink. Third girl, it's the same thing. And I finally said to her, I said, what's with all you girls with, with all the drinking? And she goes, I'm just trying to make you look attractive. And that was the punchline. And then I came, thought about it and, and said, he need to come back and say, uh, so, can I buy you another drink? Hmm. <laughs> so I can't not give them a funny line when, when I think of it. I can't, you know, if, they, if there's a topper for it, I've got to give it to them. Um, I've got... I mean, even with your students, if, if they're not ending on the punch word, you you got to change it for them. Yeah. The other thing is 90% of them are too long. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah so the yeah. key is take out everything that you can and people still get the joke. You know, if the joke is about what a bad cook your sister is, we don't need to know that, hey, I went out to see my sister last week in Conyers, which is like about 40 miles from here, and went all the way out I-20, and it just took me like about an hour and a half to get out there, and, you know, she's off this country road that goes for about two or three miles, and you get out there, and she lives in this fenced-in house, got like five dogs, you know. Yep. The joke is, I'm at my sister's house for dinner. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. So... Anything that come out, I, I have a quote on the front of my book from some famous person, I can never remember their name, but is, it says, as in life, um, art reaches perfection, not when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. Ooh, yeah. So when you can take, and that's what Florenfeld does, he'll work for hours on a joke to get rid of one or two words. Because he's slow, I guess. I could do that like in two minutes. Of course, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I could do a Seinfeld. Dude. No, with yeah. Seinfeld. Yeah. Did you out there listening. That'd be really scary. Okay. Did you ever cross paths with Seinfeld up oh, in yeah. New York? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was one of the warm-up acts for uh, a show that he did here, here in Atlanta. He was a comedian in New York, so, you know, we'd be on shows together. Uh -huh. You know? He'd be the big star, and I'd be the other guy. You yeah. Know? And I've had to follow Sam Kennison. That was a nightmare. Oh, my god. Eddie Murphy. That was a nightmare. <sighs> Jeff Foxworthy in Atlanta, which, you know... This is his home town. And yeah. I didn't realize this first time I worked with him. He was the feature actor. I was the headliner, obviously, before he made it big. 
And I mean, he'd come off stage and the place would just be screaming and cheering. Plus he was a funny guy too, but every one of his high school and college and IBM friends would be out there with their families because they're feeling great because, hey, I know this guy. And then I'd come out and I was just starting to work on stand-up then. I had my comedy magic act which worked for years. I'd been on TV, but I wanted to go back on TV and I knew I had to write stand-up in order to do it. And my stand-up just sucked compared to his. So, you know, he'd come out, and I'd come out and go, ah! And then finally I'd get him on my side and I'd do the comedy magic and they'd like it and I'd have a good show, but, woo! So. And you both had the mustache. Mustache, tall, skinny guy. Yeah. You know? And you came out with the raccoon. You had to get him with Rocky. That's how we differentiated ourselves. <laughs> but mine, mine was a redneck raccoon. Oh, very <laughs> you, nice. I had a bit said, you might be a raccoon if. No. No. Is that how you <laughs> opened? And they no. were like, you're not Jeff. That'd be funny, wouldn't it? You're not Foxworthy, man. Yeah. <laughs> but Jeff's a great guy, too. One of the really nice people of comedy, too. That's what I've heard. He's, a, he's definitely a bucket list to get on here. But um, Good luck with that. <laughs> Are you being serious? <laughs> Maybe you can, like, uh, stalk him outside church one day, you know, Sunday. He goes to church up there, like, one of those big mega churches. Mm. So maybe you can, like, just oh. Foxworthy. Oh yeah, you, comment. Do you think I can get him? You don't. No. I don't know. You said no. I said no. You said you're gonna break a kid's dreams like that. Well, you know, justice. I'll tell you a lesson I always teach my kids. You said no. <laughs> if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Don't ask me. Ask him. And you know, you can always find somebody that knows him. You know, you find somebody who's his neighbor, or somebody used to work with him at IBM or goes to church with him. You, but you got to ask. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughters. Uh, my daughter now is with A24 up in New York. They did Moonlight and all those yep. things. She's yeah, interning yeah. with them. And out of a thousand applicants, she got the job. And she never once said, Dad, there's just too many people. I said, ask for it. Go and, and, and do it. And you know, she auditioned for it, and they were just blown away. So she's up in Brooklyn now living the dream. That's awesome. But so many times in her life, and my oldest daughter... They've asked for something, and then they get it. And they go, they always go, thanks, Dad. But if you don't ask, it's no, right? Are you very intentional as far as, and you mentioned being spiritual. Are you very intentional as maybe like visualization or actually goal setting and like I'm a goal setter. My daughter, uh, Gianna, is visualization. She, when she started college, she did a, a vision board. And on that board was playing, she's a guitar player and songwriter, playing um, music at some of the top clubs in Athens, writing songs and producing an album, producing a short video. None of these things had she ever done before. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, she came home from uh, Athens the first summer, and she was a violinist. She was a really good violinist. Had Diane teach her some chords on the guitar, and we'd hear her up in the bathroom strumming and singing these things. Next thing I know, two months later, she's got an EP on Bandcamp, now she has two EPs. She just did another one on there. And, you know, great music for that age. She did a video on teenage girls that got very high acclaims from a lot of teen magazines and spots and stuff. And she did everything that she wanted to do. And each year she's done that. I, I remember when she was a little kid, I showed her uh, the video of um, The Gift or what it was. It was one of those. The Secret? The Secret, right. Uh-huh. So she's watching that, and she's like 12 years old, I think, at the time. 
and she wants to get an iPod, you know, the little iPod, back when no iPods. She wants that for Christmas. And I go, honey, I'm not getting you an iPod for Christmas. They're like hundreds and hundreds of dollars, okay? There's no possible way. And she made a vision board, hung it on the refrigerator. It had a picture of iPods and all this stuff and kids with iPods and had a pink iPod in the center, which is the one that she wanted. And she would come down and she'd look at it and she'd visualize herself having that iPod and I'd walk by and go, that's so sad. Already, <laughs> <laughs> kid, come on, get a life. So before Christmas, I'm going to get myself a video iPod because I'm super cool with that. This is before iPhones, right? And I'm going to get my oldest daughter an iPod. So I go to Hi-Fi Buys, it used to be here. Whoa. And yeah. I have my old iPod, and I'm turning that into, and I said, all right, I'm going to get that one here, and I'm going to get that one there. The guy looks at it and says, well, you know, if you buy those two, you get a mini iPod for free. And I go, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> do you have it Do pink? you have pink? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> and, you know, I would thought, thought Christmas, when she opened it, she would, like, freaked out. But she was like, oh, there it is. Oh, like, yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, why wouldn't it be here? And I mean, I just thought that was hysterical. But, you know, she does that. She, you know, sets her, you know, I'm sure she's doing a new vision board now that she's in New York yeah. of what she accomplished. She wanted to meet her um, favorite actress, Vardis, um, 85-year-old filmmaker and photographer, French, meets her outside a bathroom in New York City. <laughs> wow. Wants to, wants to go to a music festival through her school, she gets nominated to go to Cannes. <laughs> it's like stuff like that just happens to her all the time. Do you find the same thing with your goal setting? Well, the thing with goal setting is that if you don't set a goal, where are you going? You know, it's like, you know, they talk about like a pilot. When he's going from Atlanta to L.A., he's got to set his goal that he's going to L.A. because a plane constantly is drifting off the path. And you've got to correct and go... Uh, forward on it. So if I don't set a goal with a timeline, you know, how am I, I'm never going to get there. It's like one of the things I learned again through the National Speakers Association was to do a to-do list, but do it at night before you go to bed. So when you, so your brain's working on it all night long. And I have, I have one up there now. It's got uh, 15 things on it. And those are all things that I need to do. And I will check them off as I do them. And the thing is, if they're not there, then they're just in my head and I forget them all the time. Yep. But now every day I got to look at it and go, oh, I got to get that application in for that thing. Oh, I've got I've, I've to get this done. You ever do this? You, you write like a to-do list and then you do something that went on the list and you write it down and cross it off. You know, I, so, all, like I do that more. all the time. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you organize it in terms of importance? Like these are the top three. That's and the next then... thing. I, I don't do it in order because I write them by hand, but I will mark them. So um, these are high priority ones. These are medium. This is long term. Mm -hmm. And as far as you have like oh daily to do list or daily goals, and then do you do weekly, monthly? You said deadlines, so it's like I want to do a corporate gig in July or specific. Well, my daily one also includes the weekly and monthly, but then I have the long term. So I'm a martial artist also, and, and I've, I've competed in world contests and, and won him in, in Tai Chi. And I'm studying with this new guy who it's the stuff that he does um, exercise-wise is just killer. It's just brutal on your legs. It is. I mean, you're finishing and you're like shaking like Ooh. this. 
but it just builds your connection to the ground and everything's guy Adam Meisner, M-I-Z-N-E-R, if anybody wants to look it up. And he's coming to America to do seminars here throughout the summer. And I'm my long-term goal, because I, I, this spring I've had colds, I've had shingles, and I've had excuses not to work out for about the past three or four months. So I'm getting it back into it. And I want to go to that uh, seminar in D.C., but I've got to be in shape in order to do that because I won't last for four days. I'll be like totally waste my money. So that's my long-term goal. And my short-term goal right now is to get back doing this standing all this two days a week. And next week, my goal will be three days a week for a couple of weeks. And then I'll get up to four days a week and, and so on. And for longer periods of time so that when I go there, I can actually get something out of it. And is this on your wall somewhere you see every that's day? That's in my book anything? I see every day. Just in your book? Yeah, I, I have a notebook that's, you know, a spiral, not a spiral, well, it's a notebook. It's it's not going to come apart. It's not like a snap to spiral thing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I've, I've got them collected since my first time I ever did comedy. And everything is in there and dated so I can go back and look through it, find people's phone numbers, find things that I wrote down, jokes I wrote down, but... It's all on those books. So every day I look at that. Matter of fact, I was just going to use a function on my computer. I said, I'm going to put my to-do list on here. So every time I tap on this, it'll drop, just drop down. I go, nah, I like writing it better. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, something about the, the kinetic force of writing it down really just like ingrains it in my brain. Well, you want to do a great exercise. Uh, take about two hours one day and, and hand write your whole routine that you do now out. Just write, just write out the whole thing word for word, and you will find yourself editing like crazy. Hmm. You will, and you'll wind up finding yourself doing things, doing things better. I practice my corporate uh, presentation a lot of times walking my dog. I'm walking down the street going, raise your hand if you got stress in your life. <laughs> Some of you got both hands up, huh? And as I'm doing it, oh, that sounds stupid. You know, hey, what if I said this? And I'll, I'll practice it like that. And uh, so as I'm doing it over and over again, some people do it on a treadmill if they're working out and stuff like that, but constantly be doing your routine over and over again and, and do the exercise of writing it out, you'll change a lot of stuff. It'll, it'll make it better. That's gold. Yeah. Because I am just now at a point where it's like I've been doing comedy. Like, I mean, in terms of doing the rest of my life, it's not a long time, but I've been doing it long enough where I'm like, okay, this should be a career. You should mm -hmm. really make this a, like a a profitable business. So I am obsessed now with making every day more intentional and be doing something with an end result in mind as opposed to just, well, what do we do today? Yeah. So it's if you want to do corporate, uh, call 10 people a day, mm -hmm. every day. And you know what? Once a week, twice a week, you might get a live wire. And out of those, you know, maybe once a month right now or twice a month, you'll get a job out of it. And all of a sudden you got, know three four thousand dollars for you know a couple of jobs and if you're not if you're not charging at least two thousand dollars for what you're doing then you're not any good oh well i was thinking just something short term is like i'm a good host so i could just host events yeah. in, instead of developing an entire because you have a whole presentation you have like a whole speech. yeah i, I have I, I can do hours but yeah. my, i have two programs laugh more stress less and avoid getting burned out and humor in the workplace. How to use your sense of humor to release stress, diffuse anger, and, and better relationships. Mm -hmm. So those are both 45 minute to an hour program, right? Both funny, both relate, relate to that. 
But if you're going to be a corporate MC, you got to be more than just an MC if you want to make big bucks. Like I have a couple of friends, what they would do is attend the, obviously the whole event, they'll MC it, but they would take notes during the whole day and come up with funny things to say next time they come back up about what they just saw. Oh yeah, kills. Oh, that's cake. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I'll just start. Maybe even yeah, like you said, just cold calling people. Just see. Yeah. What are the job titles that usually book that stuff? You never know. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. It's you can go through, start with association executives. Like I'm a member of. Uh, the Georgia Society of Association Executives. Uh, if you get in, you know those people. You've been there a few years. They trust you. You offer to you volunteer for everything. Um, they start to use you. That's how my corporate business started. I was doing my comedy class for the, I think it was like the Buckhead Toastmasters mm. or something, or the Perimeter Toastmasters. And it was a very... Uh, I guess, high echelon group of Toastmasters, they were all executives and business people. And one woman was part of the Georgia Society of Association Executives. She and this other guy were in charge of a talent contest they were doing at the punchline. And at the end of the program, she just begged me, she said, would you please come and do like a spot like you did today, or, or just do 15 minutes of comedy. I, she said, our talent is just so bad, and we need something <laughs> at the end of the show to really bring it together. I said, I'd be glad to do it on one condition. Don't introduce me as the comedian. Just introduce me as the last person this evening so they think I'm one of them. Right? I did that and just killed, just mm -hmm. destroyed them. Yeah. At the end of the program... People are lining up, handing me their cards. Hey, I got a meeting coming up in two months. I got a meeting coming up in a month. Hey, can you do this? And back then, I was doing them for like $500 a piece. Or, and I finally got up to about $1,000. I'm going to $1,000 for 45 minutes. Incredible. And then I had lunch, in, uh, lunch with a, a top speaker. And we talked about changing leads and stuff. He goes, I'm not giving anybody your name. You're charging $1,000. I said, well, why not? Because, because they see how funny you are for $1,000. They're never going to hire me for $2,500. You need to raise your price. And I said, okay, my price is $2,500. And I came home and I told Diane that day, I said, my new price is $2,500. She said, seriously? I said, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the next guy I talked to on the phone called me up and they said, by the way, what's your, what's your price? And I said, $2,500. <laughs> And he said, uh, that's a little high for, for us. And I said, well, wh what were you looking to spend? And he says, tops 2000 And I said, well, I tell you what, if I came in and did it for you for 2000 you know, would you, and you love the program, would you refer me to some other people? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got off the phone, and I'm going, <laughs> I negotiated down to 2000 Oh, my God, that's unbelievable. So, uh, and then, then it just kept going up from there over the years. You know, people that were at my level were charging three, four, five thousand. And believe me, that, that's the first time I asked for 10,000. I was like, and they said yes. I'm just going, it's like 10,000. You yeah. do, do you understand that was in dollars and not centavos or pesos? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, that's the level that I was playing at. 
and I'm mad. I said, what? They, show, they flew me out their business class, picked me up in a nice car at the airport, took me out to this great restaurant the night before. Huh? That's the way to live. That's goals right there, man. Yeah, so, so non-celebrity speakers, you know, you should be able to get four or 5,000. And you got to figure, it's, it's, what this guy explained to me, it's a matter of perception. Yes. You got to figure, let's say you worked at a company and you were inviting your boss over for dinner. Right, would you go out and get an, a really good chuck steak or would you get um, filet mignon or prime rib? What would you get? Filet. Exactly, because you don't want to take a chance. Yeah. It, it turning out bad. With that meeting planner, their butt's on the line. Who's talking to you? Ed, who's hiring you? And they're sitting there going, you know, I may be very funny and I go, I'm $750. And you come over and go, well, I'm $4,200. And they're going, man, you know, I want to make sure it's good. I better get Joel because, you yeah. know, he's got to be better because he's, he's almost three times what Jeff is. It's just tough when you're a comedian and you're like, yeah, I'll host there for $50 and some chicken wings. And then you're trying to tell a corporation of uh, $1,500. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Voice yeah. goes up a couple octaves. Yeah, exactly. My favorite poster I have myself, and I still may have it upstairs somewhere, was playing for a college and it said, Jeff Justice, comedian juggler. <laughs> I know, juggler. <laughs> I was like, Jeff Justice, comedian juggler, free. Chicken and fixins, a dollar. Wow. <laughs> so I was actually less than chicken and fixins. <laughs> That's beautiful, man. Dude, thank you so much. I know your time is very valuable, so thank you for doing this. This did go a little bit longer than I intended to take up out of your day, but. Hey, break it up into two podcasts now. I, I, just, I just knew, well, one, you had never been really interviewed like this before in right. depth, and you have so much knowledge I think people can benefit from. So I was really happy you were willing to invest the time to even sit here today. Well, I'm going to start doing a little, not a podcast, but a little thing called Funnier in a Minute, mm -hmm. which will be one-minute things of all the different things I know about comedy and making things funnier. And for people that are interested, my website is... Comedy Workshop, W-O-R-K-S-H-O-P-P-E.com, or if they just go to my name, jeffjustice.com, it's got a link on the side to the Comedy Workshop, or the Punchline. If they go to the Punchline, it's got the Comedy Workshop link on there, too. I saw that, yeah. And your website has links to your, your books, your CDs. Everything. All, this, all the services you provide. You, you call yourself the, what was it, the Humor Resource Director. Right. It's I'm very there clever for your humor branding. resources. you got a great memory. <laughs> well, I care. You know, I, you do. I don't like to waste guest time. You know, I want I do the research to make sure that the they're more willing to share information if they show I invested the time to get exactly. the information. So I suppose the guy that comes in. So what is it that you do? Yeah, and most Why am I here? most comedians, especially with a podcast, they just do. He's like, all right, so what's up? Like that's how mm -hmm. podcasts go now. So yeah. that's another way I'm trying to differentiate myself is providing a quality content for people they can actually benefit from and you probably also you're asking questions well what would you like to know totally right and i found that is what the listeners want like usually mm -hmm. the questions i ask they're like oh i like how you went really in depth like sometimes i'll ask i was like you'd perform this joke on conan what was it when you started and how long did it take to develop it and what was the editing like i'll go all the way in on just like the nuts and bolts of that so i knew you go all in show business. It's two separate jobs. I know you have been very successful at the business side of it and making your own path in it. So you were someone I was like, this guy is right on time. He's a businessman. Hey, here's a great question that I always ask. 
any guest comedian at my class or, mm-hmm. or the Georgia speakers, when they have a great story, I always want to ask them, so what part of that is true? Aha. Uh-huh. And it's a great question because usually there's just a small part of it's true. Like I, I have a friend of mine that's there's this whole thing about this guy talking on a cell phone at the airport and you know, it's just funny and it goes back and forth what he says to the guy and what he does and everything. And I go, so Tim, what part of that, that is true? Uh, a guy sat next to me talking on the cell phone at the airport <laughs> and said, and you just made up the rest. He goes, yeah, just imagine the other th- stuff happening and started playing with it. So that's how I teach comedy. The comedy should start from a grain of truth. Mm-hmm. It always should be something that happened or you're really thinking about or whatever. And then the comedy part can be total exaggeration and made up. Yeah, and as long as it starts in a kernel of truth, I think you got to have that foundation to build the joke on. Right. But other than that, yeah, exaggeration and all that can play into just... I'm always saying that to my students. I do a joke and I just don't believe it. I go, did that ever happen to you? No. Yeah. I've been married four times or divorced four times. I said, really? You're 22? You've been married four times? Oh, I've never been married. Well, why are you doing that joke? I thought it'd be funny. No, scratch it. You know? Yeah, I do the exact same thing because yeah. it's got, it's got to resonate personally. Exactly. You know, the more personal, the more universal. That's okay. Joelism. We're out. That's from. My <laughs> so before we do get out, is there anything else you want the world to know? That's it. You know, if, uh, if they're interested in my comedy class, yeah. it's for everybody. It's a lot of fun. It's one of the greatest nights you'll ever have in your life on stage at the Punchline. I'm getting old. I'm 68 this year, later this year. I think wow. I'm 67. It's no. martial arts, really. Something. Yeah. Hanging off. You're like water. I know, man. It's just flow. Loosely, yeah. So I'm not, I don't know how much longer I'll be teaching it. So if mm-hmm. you'd like to learn with me, that'd be great. And corporate stuff, I still love doing that. So if you've got an event coming up, looking for a great speaker, and you can't afford Joel, <laughs> don't call me. <laughs> Jeff Justice, thanks for being on Hot Breath. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you, buddy. Did you call me Ryan? I said buddy. Oh, buddy. Because oh, okay. we're friends now. Joel. Okay. I'm sorry. And I, I forgot your name for a second. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we go Ryan. He, he looks white and Ryan. He's white and Ryan. <laughs> no. Thank you, sir. I totally forgot to give you... Um, oh, I forgot to record. I have water for oh, you. Oh, okay. That's actually like our water sponsor. They're, they're Fontis. It's the local spring water. You can cut that in later on. Yeah. We're here with Fontis. Ding! Yeah, I forgot to do that at the beginning. It's it's all good. They're just cool people that just collaborate with locally. Cool. That make custom labels. So, thanks for doing that. That was great. Hey, my pleasure, man. Who knows? Might get a shooting out of one of these days. There you go, hot breath of I now challenge you, comedians, go forth. Blaze your own trail. Find your own path in this comedy world. Think outside of the box of the comedy club and really take your career into your own hands here. If you have any questions at all, please, please, please reach out. JoelBuyersComedy.com. You can contact me there. At JoelBuyersComedy on all social media, on Facebook, Instagram, all that jazzercise. LinkedIn. I'm leaning into LinkedIn lately, so let's connect on there. If you're a comedy fan and you have a question, please feel free to reach out as well. You know, I've been, I post my jokes online and the evolution of them and really just the, it's really cool to see where comedy is right now. And it's people are almost more obsessed with how a joke is done as opposed to that the joke is done. And I really love that. And I really want to 
hit that point home here on Hot Breath with everything that I do and everyone I interview is to really get into the fine print of comedy. So that being said, my one regret in this interview, if I had to say, this is a dude who's been teaching a comedy class without doing comedy. You know, he even said he hasn't done stand-up since like the early 90s. And part of me really wishes that I kind of drove that point home or really asked him in more detail, like, how do you how do you justify that or how or why makes you still want to teach a class without even doing stand-up comedy? And do you think there's some sort of conflict of interest there? But in all reality, you know, if I were to answer this for him, which I'm not going to, but in comedy, there are certain techniques, there are certain ways to develop a joke beyond just performing it, you know, just like anything else, you know, with music, there are chords you can play and things like that. And once you're aware of those, you can then advise people on how they can use them themselves. So I'm by no means denouncing Jeff's career and the impact his class has made. He has taught thousands of people and re I know people have taken his class and they are hilarious and they have made successful careers out of comedy. But my on here, I would like to, you know, keep pushing the envelope in these interviews. And I like to really research these people, but I'd also like to take it another gear in the interviews and really maybe force myself to get uncomfortable or force myself to challenge the guest a little bit. Um, I don't know. That's just something that popped into my head after the interview is like, oh, I really wish I pushed that point home or really got him to explain that he hasn't done comedy in so long, but yet he's still teaching it. He is very knowledgeable. I'm not saying he's not qualified to teach a class, but I would have liked to hear him discuss that in more detail because I figured some people listening would be like, well, why is he teaching class if he doesn't even do stand-up anymore? But by all means, Jeff is a wealth of information and inspiration. We talked after for like another 20, 30 minutes, and he gave me a lot of cool tips on how to break into the corporate world and really find my own lane. So you will definitely be seeing me take that pivot in my career. A, and while we're at it, if you work at a place that needs a funny host for one of your events, or if you're aware of a family member or a friend that works at another company, they have events coming up that you think comedy would be a nice, fun spin on the entertainment instead of the, the regular karaoke, maybe incorporating a comedy show. Or if you have a event, a seminar, and you just want to add some fun flair to it, I'm happy to host your events as well. Let's link up. Let's even talk about it. Even if it's something you're thinking about, reach out to me and be like, hey, how can we how can we collaborate? How can we make this work? What are your ideas? I'm happy to meet you in the middle here and really work together. Joelbyerscomedy at gmail.com is my email. Joelbyerscomedy.com is my website. Joel Byers on all social media, Joel Byers Comedy. But most importantly, if you enjoyed this, just tell someone friend, family member, co-worker, just let people know about it. That's really the only step we're missing in this is just more awareness. You know, we're creating a quality podcast every single week. More and more people are creating podcasts. The waters are getting muddy with podcasters who are just doing it as a fling. 
This is over 130 hot breath episodes now. I'm really doing this for the long haul. And with your help, we can start to rise above the muddy waters of other people just trying to get a quick fix on podcasts. So if you do appreciate the hours of work I put into each of these episodes, I would appreciate a quick iTunes review or just a quick share or just tell a friend or something, you know. So that's my little diatribe there. But overall, even if you don't do any of that, I still appreciate you listening, especially all the way to the end of this outro. Bro, that's impressive. Some people just tune out, but I'm glad you found this valuable. I will not take up any more of that valuable time, and we will get out of here. I don't want you to think I'm taking it for granted. So, that being said, thank you to my engineer, Amon Garner. This dude has been working on my podcast, keeping them sounding crystal clear for uh, over 100 Hot Breath episodes now. He also has started his own podcast network, so hit him up if you want him to help you out with your podcast. Of course, my wife. Aaron Byers for making the theme song of this podcast, as well as the theme song for our podcast. We started one called Byers Life, where we're exploring the world one day at a time, and you can hear us on there arguing about, this week we went to a um, a um, pop-up market here in Atlanta, ended up getting in an argument. Kind of a fun one if you want to hop on, but that one's on iTunes and Spotify and all that, just like this one. And until here we go, we're landing the plane. Now you know, so right now, I bid you adieu. Until next Monday, right here on Hot Breath. <sighs>